Welcome to the Gems of History podcast, where each month we take a journey back in time to learn from the past. For this month's installment, we interviewed historian Alan Groves, who specializes in the history of oil in Texas. Groves, who has written several books on the subject, is our resident expert on the rise of the oil boom of the early 20th century. Most recently, Groves has had his eye on the Earth's shrinking resources. Welcome, Mr. Groves. Hey, how are we? <laughs> so you're an oil expert, huh? Yeah, yeah, just really into the oil biz right now. You know, it's up to like four fifty a gallon, so <laughs> it's uh, times are booming. Business is booming. You know, for being from Texas, you don't really have too much of a southern draw. <laughs> yeah, you see, people often get that mixed up, <laughs> and that's what happens when I get put on the spot. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the actual Gems of History podcast. I kind of wish I could have that one back. It's coming. <laughs> so I used an online service called Infrakit to auto-generate an intro for our podcast, and that's what we came up with. So that's not actually what we do here. If this is some for some reason your first time listening to a part two of a two-part series. Yep. But welcome. We are Jacob Shop and Evan Roosh, respectively. Howdy, howdy. And there's your Texas for you. There we go. He should have done that from the start. Well, hindsight's 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so what we actually do here is we take a history topic that we think is interesting that maybe you didn't learn about in school. We kind of break break it down and go through it and make it a little more fun than you probably would have learned it in a class at school. So mm -hmm. hopefully everyone can have something that they relate to, maybe get a few laughs along the way, and then learn something interesting stuff. Yeah, we're the masters of giving you interesting details about these different historical subjects and also details that you didn't really care for. Yep. <laughs> and neither one of us has a history degree between us. So nope. <laughs> you're getting it straight from people like you. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're getting it not from a scholar by any means no just some laymen that absolutely love some history i did read a book this week though so i Look that's that's something i relied on other experts for this i also saw that you wore your glasses today i did so. And that's mostly just because my contacts were bugging me, no. <laughs> not because I was trying to look smarter. I'm also wearing a Joe Exotic shirt, so I'm kind of rocking the best of both worlds right now. <laughs> but yeah, how are you today, Evan? Doing just great. Honestly, summer's in the air, the trees are blooming, the birds are chirping, except I have this huge tree right outside my window, so the uh, birds are chirping literally right in my ear. Yeah, well, at least they aren't shitting on you when you're playing beer darts with your friends, which, they, is... which they did to me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that happened, honestly, last year around this time. Yep, and it happened twice in f like a five-minute span. <laughs> yeah, so we're playing beer darts in my front yard, and Jacob's sitting underneath the tree, and lo and behold, a uh, little, little Tweety bird dropped a Nagasaki on him. Yeah. <laughs> and then... then uh, so I got him a new shirt, I believe, threw his old one in the washer, and then Hiroshima came right out. <laughs> I was really fighting nature that day. And I was fighting the alcohol that day. You know so who please else? Please see the Lizzie Borden episode. You know who else was fighting nature? The Donner Party. Oh, nice. Look at that. I'm riding my segue right into that, that topic intro. And hey, segue is good for the environment, also nature. So, Actually, I have no idea if they are, but... No idea? I'm going to let you have that one, though. Thank you. So, 
we're back with the Donner Party Part 2, the final part in the saga of this very unfortunate group. And I'm excited to talk about this part because this is really the, I don't want to say meat of the story, hey. because as you'll see going forward, that, that might be a bad pun to say, but you know, here we are. Yeah, you don't want to, you know, like put your foot in your mouth or something like that when, <laughs> when you're talking about this topic, that's for sure. So yeah, if you are eating food right now, I'd suggest finishing it and then listening to the podcast. Yes, absolutely. Do not eat food while you're, while you're listening to this bad boy. Or listen to this hungry. I don't think either extreme is a good way to do this. Kind of get like an hour after you ate, <laughs> then listen. But anyways... In the first part, we kind of covered the background of the Oregon Trail. We covered the beginning of the Donner Party's adventures and some of the steps along the way that they took in the wrong direction, not literally, but they made the wrong decisions that would lead to disaster down the road. And they were also not helped along by some of the people along the trail, namely Lansford Hastings, the titular man of the Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. And then a couple more people along the way who just didn't give them the information that they needed, and it will lead to tragic consequences. Yeah, they definitely put a lot of trust in these people that they never met, and lo and behold, turns out you can't trust anyone out there on the Oregon Trail, especially you, Lansford Hastings. Not a great guy. No, I'm just picturing him just as this very like stereotypical jock, if you will. Like a Chad, a modern-day Chad. Oh, definitely a modern-day Chad. Just always has to be the loudest person talking in the room. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can definitely cut your trip by, what was it? Like, he, he promised, like, a month yeah, or something like Yeah, like, 350 that. miles or something. And lo and behold, as we covered in episode one, it turned out to be 100 miles longer. Yep, over and, 100 miles longer. <laughs> which is just, uh, you know, a slight miscalculation. Apparently, he just wasn't that great at... I don't know, maps, which you think that would be prerequisite number one when you're a mountain man slash uh, trail adventurer. That, but, that would help. <laughs> but we left the Donner Party at the foot of the Sierra Nevada Mountains in Truckee Meadow. They have just woken up about a few miles short of Truckee Lake, and they woke up now with their camp in a couple inches of snow. So it's... Only the beginning of November at this point, and snow has already started a month earlier than they expected. So that is where we are picking back up. After waking up on the morning of October 31st and finding their party already being snowed on, albeit only a few inches, the Donner party decided to split into three groups before moving ahead. A family known as the Breens took a group and went ahead first. The Graves and Reed families and their group, accompanied by two Miwok Indian guides named Lewis and Salvador that had joined the group after Charles Stanton returned from California took up the second group, and the rear group was manned by the Donners and their Teamsters. So the first group, the Breens, decided to attempt to make their way up the pass that they would need to cross to finish their journey to California, but after passing Truckee Lake, the snow slowly started to accumulate more and more until it was up to the chests of the party's oxen. And despite their whipping, the group had lost the wagon trail in the snow, and they couldn't get the animals to move any further, so they were forced to turn around. They made their way back down to Truckee Lake, where only a few inches of snow were on the ground, and met up with the Graves group, who had arrived on November 1st. 
which was Marianne Graves' 20th birthday. Hey, shout out Marianne. And for her present, uh, she got just in extreme difficulty in the snow. Yep, the start of a perilous journey for the next five months. Do you think on that day, she just thought, my 20th year is going to be my year? <laughs> this is the year of Marianne Graves, bitches. It's the winter of Marianne <laughs> instead of the summer of George of Seinfeld. Exactly. Summer of George. <laughs> So once the group met the Graves and had reconvened at Truckee Lake, the Breens told them bad news that they had tried to get up the pass but could not make it. So the two groups went back and forth, arguing about whether the current rain at Truckee Lake meant there was a warmer weather cycle coming through, and ultimately made the decision to try to go through the pass again. So now that the group had Charles Stanton, who had taken this route three times already by this point, they thought that they would have a better chance at getting through. But George Donner had not arrived yet, so his party was not there, and he was the technical leader of the group, so the party had no specific leader for this second attempt through the pass. That meant that everyone had to make the communal decision on what to bring and who rode on what. Louis Kesselberg, who we mentioned in the first episode, was not necessarily a great person. He had injured his foot by stepping on a sharp stick and he decided, I'm going to take one of the horses. And then the rest of the party trekked up towards the pass, but once again got quickly bogged down by the snow. And at this point, they had enough people where the groups were getting literally behind the oxen to help push them, but even then, the pace was very slow, uh, around a few feet with each push. Yeah, just that's incredible, like, setting the scene. Um, you're th- you may be thinking, how can these huge animals oxen not be able to just make it at all like snow is extremely hard to get through yeah like walking a mile regularly and walking in snow it should seem obvious but snow is extremely tiring to get through especially when you're pulling like a heavy wagon behind you and you're also pulling all their supplies yeah well imagine being the oxen like just this random ladies just behind you by your butt pushing like, excuse me ma'am <laughs> I, I didn't ask to be here you know right yeah i was just happy in missouri just eating some grass then all of a sudden i'm on this gd mountain yeah so i mean the snow is up to the chest of the oxen so you can assume that's almost chest level on the people there too yeah. so this is not easy going and this is just the beginning so eventually the group stopped for the day on the on the ground in the pass, exhausted, and decided not to turn around, but to camp and continue the next day. So they lit a large pine tree on fire and huddled around that for warmth, despite Charles Stanton's pleas to keep going forward. So the group slept restlessly throughout the night, and as they slept, a new storm had rolled into the area. Most of the emigrants woke up to Louis Kesselberg screaming, and they found that He had awoken first and found himself covered in snow, and when he uncovered himself and looked around, it appeared as though he was alone. But when he started yelling, other people began to rustle to the surface of the snow one by one. The snowstorm, whom Edwin Bryant, who we talked about in the last episode, had left a warning at Fort Bridger for the parties that they never got, he had dealt with this snow in California weeks before, And this new storm had entirely covered the Donner Party advance groups and their surroundings in snow. So at this point, they're like, 
fuck this, and turned around and headed back down the mountain to Truckee Lake again to set up camp. And this snow would continue for eight more days. That's such an insane thing to picture, being the first guy to wake up and looking around and seeing, because it's also the middle of the night, and seeing literally none of your party around. Yeah. Like, it was that hard of snow. And I can't imagine how hard of a sleep they were all in also just to actually get your bodies covered by snow. Yeah. And then wake up and think, oh, I am buried well, right now. You've got to imagine how exhausted these, oh, they've sure. already traveled from Missouri, from Illinois yeah. through to where they are now, which is on the coast, like just on the border of being in California. So this has already been a long journey that hasn't been easy. And now they're in the <laughs> worst part of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, they are so close. Like you don't really think about it. like they were so close yeah. to being done uh when these when literally the hardest part of the journey happened. Yeah, they're probably like ten to twelve miles away from where they need to get to Calif like Ooh. to to the next stopping point into California Ooh. pretty much. But they're going through like thousands of feet of elevation change yeah. and snow. So that sucks. Yeah. That it just it's so close but so far. They can just see the sunny beaches. They actually saw the Hollywood sign from where they are. <laughs> so in the east, the Donner Party had encountered their own problems while trying to continue west. One of their wagons had overturned and broken an axle on one of the other wagons. And while they were, ch while George Donner went about chiseling a new axle out of a pine pine bow, he had cut his hand, and it already became infected. And once they got close to the lake, a messenger from the other groups told them that the pass was uncrossable. So the Donner party, just or the Donners, not the Donner party, decided to set up camp where they were. They did not continue to the lake with the rest of the groups, but just stopped where they were a few miles east and began to attempt to build a cabin. They fell a bunch of trees, got around four rungs up, and the snow was just falling too fast for them to keep up. So they abandoned the cabin idea and settled into canvas tents to try and stay out of the elements the best they could. And the single male Teamsters that had come with the Donner Party to help them on the journey settled into their own camp a short distance from the Donner family. Can we just for one second just go over like what a teamster is? It's basically someone that helps control the wagon trains right. and the oxen and stuff like that. It's basically just a hired help, mm -hmm. a hired hand. A lot of these people would take single men with them who maybe hey didn't want to go on this journey alone, like we mentioned with the Graves family bringing John Snyder. Mm -hmm. he, it's basically just, I don't want to do this journey all by myself. Can I come with you guys? I'll help with the work and I'll help do whatever along the way so that's basically what the teamsters did and they were kind of in an unfortunate situation now being single men because they especially in this situation had yeah. no one else to really rely on mm -hmm. back at Truckee lake the breen family had found a primitive cabin built two years prior by a different group that was passing through and so they decided to reinforce that enough to make it livable and in total, 11 people moved into a 12-foot by 14-foot space. Wow, is that cramped. Which is smaller than the basement that we're sitting in right now. That is unbelievable. And, oh, gosh, it's just howling wind, snow. There's nowhere to go. Like, they're in there for the entire day. Yeah, dirt floor. Yeah. So they're, they're basically in a 
nature scape large jail cell <laughs> at this point. With 11 people. 11 Ugh. people stuffed in there. Another group headed by William Eddy and William Foster. More Williams is in this story. <laughs> There's yeah. so many of them. Or Bill, if you would. They found a large boulder with a large flat side and decided to build a cabin against that natural wall. And their cabin measured about 18 feet by 25 feet. So a little bigger, a little more spacious than the uh, Breen cabin. All seven of their family members moved in, along with nine other people from other families. So 16 people in this one. The Graves family decided to distance themselves a little bit from the rest of the groups at the lake, and Franklin Graves headed the, the mission to build a larger cabin for his family. And the Graves family, with Franklin and the other able-bodied men pretty much doing most of the work, built a double cabin, each side measuring about 16 by 16 feet. So they split a 32 by 16 in half with the Graves family moving in on one side with a widow and her infant, while Margaret Reed, the wife of James Reed, who was now in California just doing his thing, she moved in to the opposite side along with Lewis and Salvador, the Miwok guides, and a few of the single men in the group. So the singles cabin, if you would. Pretty much. Well, <laughs> Mar- Margaret Reed was single, not by choice at this point, but she right. was on her own. Because her husband just had to do a little stab stab. Yep. He had to kill someone and then go fight in the Mexican-American War. So Life comes at you fast. Yeah, he, just... he honestly did a lot. He had a very adventurous life. Not, And don't get adventurous confused with a happy life no, or no, like no, a no, good. No. Would not want to trade places. But he was still on his high horse for some reason. So... It was at this point, after the families had made their various camps, that they decided to make the tough decision to kill their oxen for food, because they had basically no rations left. The different groups bartered with each other, and they sold oxen between each other to give enough to everyone, and once everyone had enough, they butchered the animals and began to set aside shares of the meat for later consumption using the snow as a natural refrigeration unit. At the same time, to the east of the pass, or to the west of the pass, sorry, Bill McCutcheon, who had gone ad- on the advance party with Charles Stanton but got sick and decided to stay in California, and man we just mentioned, James Reed, were attempting to return to the Donner Party with extra supplies. So, James Reed finally doing something that's actually honorable. <laughs> he just looked around his new home and thought, wait a minute, what am I forgetting? It would be real nice if I had my wife and kids here. Yeah, you know what? Let's go back. But you know, him. he took like a week, just me time. <laughs> yeah, he just needed a little bit of like a rum springer, if he would. He was, he was just taking a little me time, a little vacation for James Reed. A little hall pass. <laughs> So, once they got about halfway there, they reached the very heavy snow, which they said was about 30 inches high, and it was too much for their horses to pass through, so they were forced to turn around. And it also didn't help that the Miwok guides that they had brought with them had decided to abandon them and go back home. So, James Reed was forced to turn around, head back to California for now, and he was kind of left to discover if he had... Other options to try and get back to his family. But first, take another week of me time. (laughs) Oh, darn. I got to go back to California. Yeah, he just saw the huge snowbank and said, 
do I really want to give up this sunny California? I'm, I have a place right on Sunset Boulevard. I've, I literally bought a bunch of land for my buddy, so I I get like pick and choose where I want to stay too. It's like a vacation in my own lands. Yeah, so I kind of have a lot of options now, and that whole snow business sounds like <laughs> a yo business. As you can expect at this point, things only got worse. The snow did stop by November 12th, which is almost two weeks after they had gotten to Truckee Lake originally. And by this point, Franklin Graves was not ready to sit around while his family got stuck in the mountains and died. So he decided to set up a party com- composed of mostly men and the only, only the women without children, namely his own daughters, Sarah and Marianne. Since the first attempt at crossing the pass was mostly bogged down because the women had to carry their children, and that obviously doesn't make for easy traveling. Charles Stanton, who was the main guide at this point, along with Lewis and Salvador, acted as the guides for this journey as well. However, before the first day was over, the group skulked back into the camp defeated because they had encountered fluffy snow almost 10 feet deep making them exhausted even more quickly than normal. Ooh, shocker. Especially since they're at now an elevation of nearly 6,000 feet. Just can't imagine walking up to a 10-foot-tall snowbank. I can't even imagine what that looks like. And we live in Wisconsin where it's just snow for six months. Yeah, it's insanity to think that. And it's fluffy snow, too. Right. Which means that you can't just walk... Like, if it was... A compact, denser snow. You have the luxury that you could, if you had some sort of snowshoes or something, which they will have later, it won't sink in so deep. But mm-hmm. with this powdery, fluffy snow, you just go straight through, and then you got to rip your foot back out with every step. Right. Just exhausting work. You're doing high knees or like, put, like walking over hurdles every single step. Yeah, and in Daniel James Brown's book, he talks about how on a normal trip, these people would have been in like peak physical condition because mm-hmm. they're doing a lot of physical labor. They're walking pretty much the entire way. So they're cut, they're fit, and they would have been like in the best shape possible pretty much to do this part of the journey on a normal if they had enough food and everything along the way. That's why like the stereotype is everyone in California is so hot just because they had to, <laughs> yeah. their ancestors had to go through this hell. Yeah, they're just tan and cut. <laughs> right. But since they ran out of food and just didn't have enough supplies, pretty much, they were not in good shape. Their body was using more calories than they were eating, and they're slowly starting to wither away, pretty much. Oof. So, some good news did come to the camp on November 14th. William Eddy went out hunting and came across a grizzly bear. He shot and killed the animal, which yielded a bounty of meat for the groups. However, with so many people to feed, the food was only going to last them a few more days. So they bought themselves a little bit of time. By November 21st, the party decided to try their hand at another expedition over the pass. It stopped snowing for a little while now, so they attempted to go while the weather was cooperating. The group made it through the pass the first day walking on the hard crust of the snow. But the deeper snow began to thaw on the western side of the pass, and the mules that were with the party began to fall through the snow. Charles Stanton refused to leave the mules, which he had borrowed from a man in California, and convinced Lewis and Salvador to do the same, 
because Lewis and Salvador knew that if they returned back to this man in California whose name was Sutter, that they would be the ones who would probably pay the price, which would most likely be their heads because they lost these mules. So with these people refusing to go ahead, the party headed home and made it back the next day. And a few days later, on November 26th, the snow began again. Truly cannot catch a break with the weather. Just that's... They just to kind of rewind a little bit. They had a full two weeks of snow in November, from November to... What was it? November 1st to November like 12th? Yeah. Pretty much constant snow. <clears throat> and then just a couple days, like no snow. And then guess what? Snow. Yeah. And the thing with trying to pass is when you hear that the snow stops, you normally think, okay, that's good, which Mm -hmm. theoretically it is. But it depends how the weather is next, because for these people to pass through, like I said, they needed to walk on that hard top crusted snow, which the only way that forms is if it's nice enough that it melts the top layer and then it's cold enough the next day or overnight that it freezes that layer then you have to hope that it stays cold enough that it doesn't just remelt, which it did in this case, and that's why the mules began to fall through. So it's a very fine line that these people have to hope that Mother Nature will ride for them. Yeah, their lives are pretty much completely out of their hands at this point. It's all based on the weather. Yeah, and they did make mistakes leading up to just the initial journey that have led Mm -hmm. them to this point, but they also just had very bad luck and... Very bad people that they encountered along. Right. At camp, the oxen meat, or they were now calling it poor beef, was turning out to be less than enough nutrition for the emigrants, which is not a surprise considering that the oxen were not in the best shape either at this point. Daniel James Brown does a really good job in his book of taking the sciences behind a lot of what these people would have gone through and explaining them so that you kind of get an understanding of why the body is acting the way it is for these people at a certain point and gives you reference points for something that you can understand since we're not going to be in this circumstance, hopefully ever. So we kind of need some sort of reference that we can go off of. Yeah, don't don't really plan on making a journey through the Sierra Nevada mountains in November anytime soon. With oxen and wagons. Without, and, yeah, without no the te- updated technology. Yeah, no technology. <laughs> so when the body doesn't get proper nourishment, it begins the process of throwing warning signs at its host, like you begin to get dizzy, you get fatigued, and your body has higher aversion to the cold weather, so your body gets colder much more quickly if you don't get the proper nourishment. And eventually, your body will begin to literally eat itself to find the nutrition to survive. It will take the stored glucose in your body, begin to break that down, to keep the brain going enough that you can function at a baseline. In this scenario, where these party members were doing the amount of physical labor that they were doing, this was not a good situation for a starved body to be in. And if the groups wanted to leave their cabins to forage for firewood, which was already labor that they were going to have to do to keep themselves warm, they would have to cut stairs out of the snow to get out of the cabins because that's how tall the snow was in front of the doors of the cabins at this point. Think about that. Cutting literal staircases to get to the top of the snow. Just to get firewood, just to live. Yeah. 
The Donner family had it particularly bad, since George, who had cut his hand, was mostly unable to do any labor because the infection was slowly creeping up his arm. That just shows how important it is to be very careful when you're doing this journey for these people because that infection set in almost immediately and is now spreading. And it's making him, I'm guessing it's going to make him delirious and Mm -hmm. sick as well as just being in pain and not having a usable dominant arm. And there's no mountain man that he can give $5 to cut it off. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about in episode one. Yeah. It was just the, the mission and job of random mountain men to chop off limbs. What a fun time to live. What a wild profession. I am so glad I live now. Right. Like I can throw soap on a cut and be set. Be okay. Put a bandaid on it. Right. And we're good. The Donner family's Teamsters had it pretty bad as well. As we mentioned, they were kind of on their own as far as food and everything went, so they were forced to eat mice and strips of their own clothing since they had none of the oxen meat that the rest of the family and the rest of the party members had. Just looking at your shirt and thinking, mmm, that looks tasty. Can I get some (laughs) sriracha? Yeah, right. The snow that had started in the middle of November continued unabated into December, so... Two more weeks of snow. Throughout the coming weeks, the Graves family worked in their cabin on making rudimentary snowshoes for their next planned attempt out of the mountain. And by December 9th, they had 15 pairs of these crude snowshoes and began going from cabin to cabin recruiting people who were willing to go out on the next advance party west to try and get help. Those that went along knew that this advance party was the last one that was going to leave the camp and either they knew that they would die in an attempt to go get help or they would get help and someone would make it back with provisions in the end the group was led by franklin graves who was kind of the biggest leadership role in the camp at this point with george donner kind of being out of commission franklin graves was this hardy midwestern man who had dealt with harsh winters in illinois and he was just decisive and very pragmatic he didn't let his emotions get in the way too much so he was opted to be the leader for this party and he was just the most motivated so he once again included his own daughters charles stanton and lewis and salvador who he needed to figure out where he was going and in addition some single men and women went along with some of the older children and in total this group consisted of 17 people so If you were listening, they had 15 pairs of snowshoes for 17 people, which doesn't work out. The math does not add up. And the youngest person uh, as part of this new little expedition was like a 12-year-old. Yeah. So when I say older kids, that that is older kids. That is the older kid, yeah. He's (laughs) the elder statesman. Because Sarah at this point is like 21 or 22, like just about to turn 22. Right. And she was considered like a verified adult at this point so and she's jacked at this point as well yeah she's just huge ripped yep so the group waited for the snow to stop before they left on this journey and they also waited for a man named milt elliott to go to the donner camp and retrieve a compass that they needed for the journey so by the 14th of december it had stopped snowing and it somewhat warmed up but this this meant that the fresh snow was going to bog them down as i mentioned earlier because it was going to be very hard for them to stay on the top layer. But as luck would have it, overnight it was very cold and this hardened that top layer of snow. And the 
crusted snow was hard enough for the party to walk on somewhat feasibly. So on the December 16th, the first member of the party in the camp died officially. The Reeds had an albino servant named Bayless Williams, and he was the first to go. He was buried in the snow. They dug did dig him in six feet deep below the surface of the snow. And this is the same day that the group headed by Franklin Graves, which would come to be known as the Forlorn Hope, which was dubbed by historian Charles McGlashan, began what they thought would be a 30 to 40 mile journey to get to the next location that they needed to get to. So I kind of underestimated earlier how far they had to go. But in reality, this journey was going to be around 75 miles, partially by their own mistakes. Right. Every single time that we, like, they've thought that's only been X amount of miles, they've been wrong every time. It's literally been almost double every time. Almost double, yeah, almost double every single time. And so just, they didn't pack enough also, like, not nearly enough. There also wasn't enough to really go around in terms of food supply. But with that in mind, thinking it was only 30 to 40 mile journey, doubling that, that also, like, doubles the days that they had to had to travel which they just didn't have supplies for also and as i mentioned earlier this isn't just 75 miles straight this is 75 miles going up steep hills Mm -hmm. going down into steep valleys all while you're trying to traverse through dozens of feet of snow at some points in the mountains like it's it it truly is insane what they like the tall task quite literally that they had oh yeah the, they're called the Forlorn Hope, and we'll see why they have that name, which is not a good name to be having a, when you're starting off on a survival journey. But no, this party is it's insane to me the amount of work that they did to actually try and do this this expedition that they're planning. Yeah, it, and they definitely knew. I believe you mentioned it before, but I think they knew that. It was either they'll make it or they will die. Last, with, This is last resort. You're right. Cut my life into pieces. This is my last resort. <laughs> Suffocation. That's a, that's a very bad, very no, bad no first two lines. <laughs> Cut my life into pieces. That's uh, a, yeah, foreshadowing. Well, I mean, it was their last resort. It is. Very much so. Papa Roach was there singing, hey, <laughs> keeping them going. Can you imagine trying to just climb these mountains of snow and it's just Papa Roach? <laughs> After the forlorn hope had left, only a few days after leaving, and not even a few days after leaving, two of the members, the two that didn't have snowshoes, turned around very wisely. And that was 10-year-old William Murphy and one of the German emigrants, whose name was, ironically, Charles Berger. (laughs) So this left the group of 15 comprised of nine men, five women, and one boy. The higher they got in advance of the pass, the softer the snow was becoming, and so the women decided to go in front of the men in hopes that the lighter body weight of the women would pack the snow down enough that the men would walk on it and not sink in as far. So they're kind of just like, hey, ladies... You want to do all of the hard work? Well, yeah. You want to just like put this entire expedition on your back? Literally. But the approach of the pass was really the toughest part, and going was definitely tough, even though it was only a three-quarter of a mile ahead. It was still around 1,000 feet higher in elevation. 
So just this quarter mile trek was going up over a thousand feet, which if you've ever gone hiking, you will know that going up a thousand feet in just like a short period of time is very difficult. It'll bog you down. And that's on like established trails. This is just literal wilderness. Yeah, the air is just in such short supply. Like they're gasping the entire time they're they're walking. Yeah. And you're in like tattered and worn clothing, wearing rudimentary snowshoes. That you just built. <laughs> you literally just made. Didn't go to Cabela's for him. So Charles Stanton specifically began to struggle quite a lot from a condition called snow blindness. So if you aren't familiar with what snow blindness is, if maybe you don't encounter snow every winter and walk from a dark room into the outside where it's sunny and there's snow on the ground and just blinds you immediately. Snow blindness occurs when harmful UVB rays from the sun reflect off the surface of snow and slowly it will begin to damage your eyes. Basically, think of a sunburn on your eyes and you can get this from just normal sun exposure as well. However, it's amplified by that reflection off of the snow. And to make things worse for the Donner Party, at higher elevations, these effects of the UVB rays are increased by a strength of about 5% for each, I believe it's 1,000 feet. So that meant that these people were experiencing effects about 30% stronger than normal from these UVB rays. And to make it worse on top of that, the effects of snow blindness can lag hours behind exposure. So that meant that many of these people were probably getting damage to their eyes on a sunny part of the day, and then the next day, if it was cloudy, they were nauseous, they were dizzy, and they had really no idea why. And if you're exposed long enough, the damage becomes permanent and can lead to total blindness. Yeah, they had no idea what was happening to them Like on this trip. They probably at some point thought that this was just God punishing them. Just of all the things, now I lost my eyesight. Like This is terrific. Yeah, could have been solved by a modern, simplistic pair of sunglasses, but right. obviously they didn't have that back then. So, Alongside this snow blindness and the obvious hunger, the group was fighting the temperature battle between too hot and too cold as well. According to the indifferent stars above, the human body needs to maintain within a range of 6 degrees to avoid the effects of hyperthermia, which is being too warm, or hypothermia, which is being too cold, beginning to bog down your body. So that basically just means that from your normal standard body temperature, you can go 3 degrees one way, 3 degrees the other way before you start to experience symptoms where your body's like, you need to rest so that I can fight this off and then you can do stuff so once that range is extended outward the body will give out and a person will die outside of a 20 degree range of body temperature so that's 10 degrees one way or another that's not a very big gap that you have to work with not at all especially with the clothes that they were wearing yeah. at the time they did not have what you what we would have today to actually keep you warm the right way if that makes sense like with clothing that like deflects the wetness of snow. As Daniel James Brown wrote, quote, As Sarah and Jay struggled up the face of what would eventually be called Donner Pass on December 17, 1846, they knew nothing of hypothermia or hyperthermia. 
but under all the layers of sweat-soaked wool in which they are swaddled, their bodies were already fighting a silent internal war between death by fire and death by ice, swinging back and forth between thermal extremes in a way that threatened to destabilize their regulatory systems and their body's precious reserves. Yeah, they had no idea that their body was just so close to shutting down at any moment. So by the next day, the party had made it through that pass, but had only made it three miles in total from camp in two days. Charles Stanton was reaching his limits because he wasn't the tallest person in the world, which meant that pulling his legs in and out of the snow was an even bigger toll on him, in addition to being nearly blind at this point. And not to mention, this was his third time taking this trip through this pass to California and back. When the next morning rolled around, the snow had stopped, but the snow blindness was starting to get to more of the group, and Charles Stanton was falling behind. And since he was the only one that knew the route from here on, because Lewis and Salvador, even though they did know the area, they had only mainly traveled through it when there was no snow on the ground. So landmarks are completely different now than when they've passed through before. And at four days into what they thought would only be a six-day trip, the forlorn hope had only made it about 14 miles. And the bigger issue was they only had two days of rations left. On December 20th, the Graves sisters, Marianne and Sarah, stayed behind to fix Marianne's snowshoe, and Charles Stanton did not come along with them when they left camp. Five months later, when another party passed through this area, they found Charles Stanton's bones in a hollowed-out tree stump. Just trying to stay warm in a tree stump. And And I'll mention this later, too, but there's something that survival psychologists call either terminal burrowing or Mm. hide-and-die syndrome, which basically means once your body knows that it's going to, or it's close to shutting down, it will tell your brain, like, let's just go find somewhere to curl up and die, basically. So that's pretty Ooh. much what they think happened to him, is that his body knew and he knew. So it just he just went wherever he could find and went inside and died. That is so sad. Isn't that kind of, didn't we talk about that a little bit in our Diet Love Pass incident episode as well? A little bit. We talked more about paradoxical undressing. Which right. is like where your body, when you are experiencing hypothermia, your body actually starts to expel a bunch of heat, which mm-hmm. makes you feel warmer. And then you're taking all your clothes off and you're theoretically you're naked in a situation where you're actually too cold. So, Right. Hypothermia is so wild. Like just these slight changes in your body temperature affect everything with your mentals. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had a 103 degree fever two weeks ago mm. when I was sick and I barely could like get off the couch at some points without getting dizzy when I sit up. So it's like, if I'm just dealing with a normal fever, I can't imagine what these people are trying to do. Like right. w- with all of this physical labor they're doing. Oh, for sure. That's so much to do while your body's trying to battle this. Cause like you mentioned, hyperthermia and hypothermia are literally your body telling you to chill out. Yeah. Back at the Donner camp and the Lake camp, more people were beginning to slowly die there as well. The weaker of the Donners, brother Jacob, had passed shortly after the advance party left, along with three of the hired single men traveling with the Reeds and the Donners. And when the next morning rolled around for the forlorn hope, the snow had begun to fall heavily again. Just can't catch a break. 
Snow on snow on snow. The party continued on, hoping that Lewis and Salvador could lead them now that Stanton was gone. But the Miwok men really did not have any more idea where they were going than the rest of the party. So this lack of guidance led to another disaster for this party. When faced with either taking a small cliff or a small climb over a ridge to get back to the correct and established path down the mountain to what is Johnson's Ranch, which is the next stop, the party opted for the more inviting appearance of the southern path. This led them to the most treacherous parts of the Sierra Nevadas with canyons over 3,000 feet deep. You almost can't blame them seeing just a path that may not have as much snow on it. In my opinion, I'd probably do the same thing. Exactly. And when you don't know where you're going, mm-hmm. seeing like something you have to climb over again after you just climbed a thousand feet, I, I wouldn't want to. But right. how are you supposed to know that climbing over is going to lead you to salvation pretty much? It's insane. It's all about knowing where you're going. By the night of December 23rd, the camp hadn't had anything to eat for 48 hours while burning the equivalent number of calories to an Olympic biathlon competitor. One man in the group, an Irishman named Patrick Dolan, then suggested the unthinkable. He had the idea that they draw lots to see who they would kill in order to eat them for the rest of the party to survive. The first outright talk of cannibalism. Bad look for the Irish. (laughs) Not, Not great. Not a great look for your boy, but... That's just where they had truly no other option. No. And to well, actually... Well, at this point, it's only been two days. They still had... They didn't have to do this here, but... Gotcha, gotcha. But, yeah, just to bring it up, I can't imagine the looks he got after yeah. that. It's like, hey, I got this cup of dice. Let's, let's roll. So after he suggest, after Patrick Dolan suggested this... The group agreed, and the men in the group drew strips of paper to see who would be the one to die. And as luck would have it, Patrick Dolan would be the one to draw the short straw. That's just, I guess, do you even call it karma? Because I feel like karma's already beaten the hell out of him. Yeah, that's just... That's just truly the worst. He, is the, he has the worst luck of all the Irish people That's ever. God, God just giving you the middle finger. Right. It's like, oh, you want to you talk about eating some people, huh, Patty? After he drew the short straw, they grabbed the rifle, but when the time came to pull the trigger, no one could bring themselves to kill Patrick Dolan. And the way things were looking, someone was going to die soon enough anyways. So what's the point in killing one off? Yep, when old grandpa in the corner is looking like he's about to fall at any moment. Literally, Franklin Graves is not doing well. No. (laughs) Because... It goes to say that Franklin Graves is its either over 20 years older than the next youngest man in the group or just under 20 years older than the next youngest man in the group. So he is a literal grandpa in this scenario, trying to lead this group of what are essentially children through these mountains. That's insane. It just, just the group dynamic of that, too, probably had such a huge effect on morale and just the decisions that they're going to have to make coming up. Yeah, and you've only been traveling with these... You've been traveling with them for months. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, who knows if you even knew any of these people before you met them on the wagon train. Right. So you're traveling with what are close to strangers, 
and you have to try and make these decisions. It's almost a thing. Would you rather eat someone you know or a stranger? That's, the, that's definitely a would you rather question for a different time. So at this point in the trip, the party realized that they did take a wrong turn, but really had no idea how to figure out where they took the wrong turn to go back and fix it. And things just kept getting worse. When they were building a fire, they unknowingly built over a stream, and the fire melted into the snow and fell directly into the rushing stream below. And when they went to go chop more firewood... The head of the axe flew off and was immediately lost in the snow. The group eventually did get some wood together and lit the fire with a flintlock rifle, but the Mexican teamster Antonio, who was with the party, died next to the fire that night. His hand fell into the fire once and was pulled out, but the second time his hand fell in and he didn't make an effort to pull it back, everyone knew that he was dead. So he was dragged outside of the camp and set in the snow. That is, without a doubt, straight out of a cartoon, like the first thing with the fire, where you light a fire and it falls into a river that just happens to be Yeah. That's straight up, like, that's just unbelievable. It is literally a comedy of bad luck. Right. Like, I expect a laugh track to happen after that. Like, that's, that has to be so demoralizing. Oh, also. yeah. The fire you just built goes into a river, and then an axe that you... The only axe that you have, the head just flies into the snow. Like 10 feet deep snow. Oh, that's so tough. The cycle of death in the group went into overdrive at this point. Franklin Graves, around 20 years older than the next oldest man in the group, as I mentioned earlier, died shortly after Antonio. Patrick Dolan, the Irishman who had drawn the short straw earlier, began to slowly lose his mind and attempted to leave the group due to what we talked about earlier with the hide-and-die or terminal burrowing syndrome. He died after being dragged back into the camp, and this led the party to Christmas Day. Hey, say what's up to Santa. (laughs) Hopefully Santa can come pick him up on the sleigh and just take him to California. No, instead of doing that, Santa just gives him, like, the joy, like, Christmas cheer. (laughs) What the hell, old man? Keep the spirits up, everyone. Ho, 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 as they're just looking there at chops, looking at the reindeer. Yeah. "Hmm, Those are some fine, thick thighs on on Rudolph over there. Grab the rifle. Grab, Grab the rifle. Pop the one with the red nose. In the Forlorn Hope camp, Christmas Day was signaled by another death. This time, 13-year-old Lemuel Murphy, he found a rat and ate it alive. That's gross. But this was almost a bad decision because this little amount of food kick-started his body back into the pain of hunger. Because at this point, let me explain. When your body is going through these hunger pains... Eventually, it gets to a point where those pains will subside. But when Lemuel Murphy ate this rat, it kicked those pains back into overdrive. So, it was said that he reportedly screamed, Give me my bone! While trying to escape the circular camp. So, everyone just shoved him into the center of the camp and forced him to stay there, And shortly thereafter, he died and was put in the snow with Antonio, Franklin, and Patrick. Meanwhile, back at the lake camp, everyone was doing what they could to scrounge together meals, which meant that families were boiling bones from the oxen for broth and hides from the oxen to make 
what was considered a glue-like substance for the kids to eat, along with whatever extra treats the families could afford to spare. More people here were on the verge of death, with George Donner's infection slowly creeping through his arm and making him nearly useless at this point. wonder why he just never decided to chop it off. I guess that's a very hard decision to make. But that, and I just don't know if anyone would have had the energy to do it, honestly. Oh, yeah. Because that's not, that's not an easy task to just cut someone's arm off. Yeah, a little ignorant on my part not to just be like, just chop the thing off. <laughs> just put it on a stump and hit it with an axe. Just a little snip, snip, get this over with. At the Forlorn Hope Camp, after exploding some more gunpowder to start another fire, the camp butchered and began to eat the four dead bodies that lay outside the camp yes now we're getting into what this what the donner party is pretty much mostly known for yeah if you know anything about the donner party it's probably that they ate each other yes a little hint of cannibalism when they decided to butcher the bodies they separated into groups to make sure that nobody ate any of their relatives lewis and salvador however refused to eat any of the flesh, seeing this as an abomination, and they peaced out from the rest of the group and went a short distance away and camped on their own because they did not want to be a part of this. Yeah, do not want to hang out with these folks at this point. It's kind of hard to say why the group resorted to cannibalism in such a relatively short amount of time, but another main theory other than the fact that they had loved ones back at camp is that they were going off of the mistaken assumption that they thought the four that had died died of hunger when in reality they most likely died of hypothermia but they had no way of knowing that so after this grisly meal the party was somewhat re-energized they packed up the remaining meat that they could garner which was about enough for four days and continued onward oh that's so just the the packing and like saving of the meat also is just so weird just thinking that you just have someone that you talked to probably a couple days beforehand just in your bag yeah. you just have their calf and the way i'm imagining this visually is that they literally just had backpacks with like hands sticking out and stuff and like Ugh. legs sticking out which I don't know if that's actually true or if they just like took the meat off all the bones. But, but... for the benefit of us being dramatic yes. and listens and clicks, that's exactly how it went. They traveled through the mountains, hands and feet, bloody ligaments sticking out of the backpacks. Not even bears would try to take them because they thought that was kind of messed up. The two Indian guides kept their distance and stared as these now cannibals continued onward on this journey of death. <laughs> <laughs> the next step for the party was crossing the canyon, which was not an easy job. On the descent, it was kind of a fun time because the survivors found that they could use their snowshoes as a type of sled, which made the going a little quicker. But, oh, and they had like a little fun with it too, oh, yeah. I bet. They were throwing snow on each other, like they were, making hills to go off jumps. They were using the arms and legs that were in their as backpacks as, yeah, <laughs> as just like little oars as well to help them go faster. It was a grand old time. But this also meant that when the snowshoe obviously would get caught in the snow, that would flip off of the snowshoe into the snow, which damaged their already tattered clothing even more. And once they reached the bottom of the canyon, 
they had to climb back up on the other side on these sheer rock faces. By the end, their feet were bloody and cracked, and since their shoes were pretty much gone at this point, they wrapped their feet in rags, which oozed with blood. There, it was also said that some of the men who didn't wear shoes at any point, which was mainly Louis and Salvador, their toes began to fall off at the first joint. Oof. And at this point, it was clear that the men were struggling much more than the women, but they eventually made it up and across the canyon. So now that they're in January, on January 2nd, the party stopped using their snowshoes and by the 3rd of January had finally reached ground that wasn't covered in snow. So that's, that's a welcome sight. I would be so... I can't imagine the just sheer bliss of just not seeing white powder anymore. Yeah. But instead... They had to go through a bunch of dense brush. <laughs> they went from, that's a lot of white powder to, oh, no, that's a lot of green. Oh, no, sticks. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Don't I, step on any of Louis them. Louis Kesselberg had a bad time with one of these. Are right. you the one that hurt Louis? <laughs> he tried beating up the stick. This new terrain ripped their clothing and battered their bodies. And Jay Fostick, who was Sarah Graves' husband, began to slowly fall behind the rest of the group. By this point, their rations had run out and they resorted to eating their shoes. The group even conspired to kill some of the members of the group once again, namely the relative strangers to the group, Louis and Salvador. That's just... Ah. They led you the entire way. All they've done so far is try to help you, and you're just like, guys. They even, stood, they even stayed around after they were eating people. Yeah, they... They could have abandoned these people at the drop of a hat, like the, the ones, the Miwoks that were with James Reed did. Mm -hmm. Granted, they were with James Reed, who I'm not assuming is a very pleasant person to be around most of the time. Not one bit. But he wasn't visibly eating people in front no. of you. So <laughs> I don't know what these guys had in some honor code to stay with this group, but they didn't stay any longer because whether they were tipped off or noticed that all of these people were like whispering and pointing at them from the corner of the camp, Lewis and Salvador got the hell out of Dodge and went up on their own. Thank goodness that they got out when they did. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because I don't know. Can't imagine that the whites would have uh, oh. hesitated at all. No sympathy there. On January 5th, William, Eddie, and Marianne Graves went out hunting and had a stroke of luck when they found a deer. Eddie, who was almost too weak to even hold the rifle, somehow managed to steady his hand enough to get a shot off and hit the deer. Once the deer collapsed, they slit the throat of the animal, and both William, Eddie, and Marianne Graves kneeled down to drink the blood as it ran out of the wound. Just fucking vampire people. That is, it just keeps getting grosser and grosser. You know, it, nah, it doesn't get any better from here on out. No, they just, oh, jeez. That's insane. Just to just be beer bogging some deer blood. Yeah. <laughs> they brought the dead animal back to camp where they found out that Jay had died. So some of the group butchered the newly acquired deer, while others butchered the newly dead Jay. <sighs> I mean, that's one of those things, one of the, I don't know if it's a complete myth with cannibalism, but 
once you like have the taste of human flesh that's like something that like the taste actually like, stays on your mind and it's it, almost like, like addicting yeah and it drives you insane and so i wonder if they had other options they had a full deer but they, instead they were like j j j you looking this, mighty fine that guy over there's like right there he's so warm guys come feel him so now sarah had to sit with her sister and eat the venison meat from the deer while the others away from them ate her newly deceased husband. No, I forgot about that. Oh, that is, that's probably the most psychological, that's just psychological torture. I can't imagine proceeding after that. I mean, she's now had to see her father get eaten. Yeah. And now her husband get eaten within the span of two weeks, not even. Oh, how do you even come back from that? That's insane. She didn't. She does not. No, not really. I mean, kind of, but not really. On January 7th, the group had to recross the canyon after it made a sharp turn. So that meant that they had to descend about 2,700 feet and then climb back up 2,700 feet. And it's kind of crazy to me that if they would have passed through this same way a year later than this, the gold rush would have been in full swing and rendered this area inhabited. There would have been camps all over the place, and they would have had all of these people to stop in with and been like, we need help. But instead, the group continued on alone because there was no settlement to be seen. Timing is everything. I mean, when we talked about that in episode one, how they left super late just at the very beginning of the journey, which kind of led to all this, it's insane that a year later, and they just wouldn't have had to eat people. Yep. Probably would have... I mean, most of them would probably still be alive. Can't imagine too many deaths. Yeah, I guarantee not even a quarter of the people would have died. Mm -hmm. So slowly but surely, members were beginning to go crazy. Some were pulling knives on each other and threatening to kill each other, but no one ever actually committed the deed. So with their feet bloodied and their bodies exhausted, going was even slower than before. And as the emigrants moved forward, they happened upon some more bloody footprints, which led them to the unfortunate duo of Lewis and Salvador. William Foster walked up to the two Miwoks, who were too crippled from exhaustion to move, and shot them and killed them. They then stripped the two of what little meat they had left, and ironically, the forlorn hope would wander into a Maidu Indian encampment a couple days after they did this. Full, fully knowing that they still had meat from a fellow Indian tribe yeah. in their packs. Oh my gosh, just the sheer, I mean, the psychological aspect of this, just your first thought is, oh, we see these people are crippled. Let's dig in. Yep. Just the desperation of these people is... Definitely something that we can never even hope to imagine. Nope, like not even close. The Lewis and Salvador arc just never gets better. The, their arc, yeah. <laughs> it's just never a good arc for no. them. No, no, no. No amount of... I assume that they were in that to get paid in I, some fashion. But... I don't even know if they would have gotten paid, honestly. They got yeah. hired by a land... Like a land baron in california to take Mm -hmm. these pack mules with charles stanton so 
I'm assuming he was just like, hey, I got these guys. You can take them. Yeah, go get them. And then they were responsible for bringing back the mules. The mules, yeah, right. So this Maidu Indian camp that they wandered into luckily was nice and fed these survivors and led them camp by camp towards Johnson's ranch. In the end, everyone but William Eddy was too exhausted to complete the trip and laid down, literally, on the path while he went ahead with one of the Indian guides and reached Johnson's ranch. He told those at the ranch about the others still on the trail, and the settlers there used William Eddy's bloody footprints to guide them back to Sarah and the others. They had finally reached help a month after they had left for what they thought they would be less than a week journey. Snowman. Snowman? Snowman. Frosty? (laughs) Frosty. Frosty did it. It's crazy to think that your feet could be bleeding that much that it can take a group of people like over a mile to Mm -hmm. find other people. And the sheer exhaustion that they're all feeling too, that they just literally had to know we are sitting down and laying on this path. We cannot move anymore. No, it's, but honestly, going through all of that and still making it as far as they did is absolutely and utterly incredible to me. Right. Like I couldn't climb that canyon right now. And I, with I, full gear. And I'm in pretty good shape right now. And like I just ate before. So it's not like I'm malnourished or anything mm. like that. So props. Yeah, having never experienced hunger like true hunger in my life, I can't imagine experiencing it like they are, as well as climbing miles of mountainscape for an entire month. A month of your life just trying to survive and get to this ranch. So back at the lake, the rest of the Donner party were struggling with the weight from the forlorn hope. Margaret and Virginia Reed, along with their servant and Milt Elliott, attempted their own escape journey but returned after five days. The infants at the camp were slowly declining in health. Families were beginning to fight over scraps of animal hides to boil and eat. And some of the younger men who were doing most of the labor were starting to go mad and becoming even weaker. Around the time when Sarah and the Forlorn Hope reached Johnson's ranch, in the three full months since the Donner Party had become entrapped, 14 people at Truckee Lake had died, all of them being men. And by February 4th, two more men, two women, and a one-year-old girl had died as well. It was also on February 4th that the first rescue effort from Johnson's Ranch, named the First Relief, left to save those who were stranded at Truckee Lake. By February 18th, the party had finally reached the camp and descended in carrying rations and supplies. But upon arrival, one of the First Relief Party members described the scene as thus. We raised a loud halloo, and then we saw a woman emerge from a hole in the snow. As we approached her, several others made their appearance in the manner of coming out of the snow. They were gaunt with famine, and I never can forget the horrible ghastly sight they presented. The first woman spoke in a hollow voice, very much agitated, and said, Are you men from California, or do you come from heaven? 
just immediately wow. flirting with these guys. Immediately. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's like, hey, mister, you look a little uh, a little warm in that, uh, that oxen hide that you're wearing there. I haven't gotten any action in three full months. As <laughs> right. her clothes like literally disintegrate Falling off her off, body. Yeah. <laughs> Not even by choice, just because she's so skinny. Yeah, so the Forlorn Hope Party left middle of December. And this first relief effort isn't getting there until middle of February. So these people had two full months that they had to wait before anyone arrived for them. And they were just chilling, like chilling in the snow, quite literally, and springing up when, when they finally saw it, people it, come. It's basically the Lewis Kessberg thing again. Like right. they walk into camp, raise a loud cry, and then people start just like poking Hello. their heads out. Mm-hmm. After this first party arrived, they made their way through the camp and told each of the settlements that the survivors would start having to make the decision on which of them was coming back to the ranch. So parents had to pick which of their children to leave without them, and some of them watched their kids walk away while they stayed behind and waited for the second relief party. On February 22nd, the first relief was ready to make their journey back to Johnson's ranch. Shortly after leaving... Thomas and Patty Reed, three and seven years old respectively, along with three-year-old Ada Kesseberg and a man named John Denton, all died on this first relief journey. Along the way, the first relief had hidden a cache of food for the trip back, but upon passing through, they found that their food had been attacked by wild animals and was all gone. Of course, that dang bear stealing the picnic baskets. I mean, from, I believe... What the book said is that they just kind of like hung it in a tree. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't think you hid this very yeah. well, but... I wonder what's up there. Not sure what you expected here. Yeah. With their rations now gone, the first relief hoped that they might be able to come across the second relief party to provide them with food. And luckily, they did encounter the next relief party, headed by none other than James Reed. Jim Boy, Wow. So he provided them with food and continued on with his own party and supplies. And when he arrived back at the camp, the scene was far more grisly than when the first relief party had arrived. Daniel James Brown describes specifically the Murphy cabin with these words. Skeletal, hollow-eyed women and children crawled out of the dark portal of the cabin and gathered around the rescue party. Scattered about the cabin where Tucker and Glover had seen bodies covered in quilts a week and a half before, human bones now lay, with shreds of pink flesh still clinging to them. Clumps of human hair were strewn about, matted in blood-stained clots. Oh, God, I just... You've only seen even semi-close to like this kind of grisly scene in movies. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine... Walking up just all like, do-do-do, going to save some people, can't wait for them to be so joyful, and then, no, it's just bones. Yeah, because when the first relief party had arrived, like, all these people were relatively okay still, but then they, these people show up and they're just like crawling zombie people out of these cabins, and there's human bones like laying in the corner, obviously, that they, these people had chewed on. Like, Oh, yeah, that, I mean... Bodies don't decay that fast. They definitely uh, had themselves a little snack. Especially in this cold weather. Right, yeah. They're basically living in a freezer. 
So at Alder Creek, where the Donners were camped, the children were relatively healthy, while the adults were pretty much all near death. And one of the children, Georgia Donner, recounted how the younger children had eaten human flesh, saying that they had no choice because there was nothing else. James Reed made all the survivors decide within two days who was leaving on the second relief and clothed and washed those who were chosen to leave. One of the second relief stayed behind to help around the camp, and James Reed and the rest of his men left with the survivors. They left on March 3rd with 17 people, mostly children, and once again going was slow since most of the adults had to carry a child. They ran short on rations only two days after setting out, and to make matters worse, there was another storm approaching. There's always a storm approaching. Always on the horizon. This area is already known to be bad for winter storms. However, there is evidence that points to the possibility that the winter the Donner Party endured may have been colder and dumped more snow than usual. Reports from other mountain men that passed through the area as late as June still reported up to 20-foot snowdrifts in the area. In June, that's insane. This, era, this was coupled by the decision the Donner Party made to camp in the worst possible area of the mountain range, with three sides of the camp being steep crags and o- the only opening being to the west, which was where all the wind and weather was coming from. Ugh. It was literally a bowl meant to trap snow. And it's like they, had, they probably had no idea. Oh, that. no, absolutely no idea. And... They're not, they're not going to go back further, because yeah. then they're just going to run out of food even more quickly. A bowl to trap snow, and that's where they were for months. Months. While it snowed the entire time. This area is home to such wild weather that Walt Disney opened a ski resort here because the snow is so fluffy and powdery. And another institution was set up here, which specifically studies extreme meteorological conditions. Not a great spot to you, end up in a camp. You can't even, you just can't even make that stuff up. It's just literally a pure happenstance that they stopped there and thought, yes, this will be our camp. And they, di- they didn't even see Mickey Mouse like on the horizon waving them into the resort. Like, come on. You just expect like this big burly man to help you out of the snow, but the only thing you get is, ha ha, looks like you're hungry. Come on, goof. So, with that in mind, just remember that these people are not, if you didn't figure this out already, are not having a good time. Not one bit. So, James Reed and the Second Relief encountered one of these crazy extreme meteorological conditions, which kept them stuck in the pass on their way to California. The group decided to build a camp and started a fire, but... Obviously, that fire would slowly melt the snow and melted a hole that became nearly 10 feet deep and 10 feet across. Inside of this pit with the fire, five-year-old Isaac Donner passed away, along with the matriarch of the Graves family, Elizabeth Graves. Other children were nearly falling into the fire, but one was caught and pulled out, and the other one fell in just so that her feet got burned. <laughs> Still not great, though. No, it, especially when you have to walk the entire time. Yeah. 
So James Reed was now beginning to suffer pretty badly from snow blindness. But despite that, on March 7th, him and his family pushed on forward to find food ahead that they could bring back to camp. So James Reed doing what he does best and abandoning everyone else. Peace. (laughs) The first relief reached Johnson's ranch on that same day. Back at camp, two out of the three men that had been left between the first and second relief parties decided to peace out from the Donner camp and abandon the survivors and head home. However, before they left, Tams and Donner offered the men a large sum of gold to take her two youngest girls, which they readily accepted. But after walking west from the Donner camp and encountering the western camps, the two men abandoned the girls at the Murphy cabin and continued on alone. Inside that same cabin where these two girls now were, Louis Kesseberg was preparing to kill a young boy in the cabin and literally hang him on a peg on the wall before eating him. Again, Louis Kesselberg, not a good guy. He's not going to get any better. But there's good news because the third relief was now setting out to come help them out. Two men who had left the Donner camp and headed back west encountered the pit of survivors on their way back, only to find the skeletal figures at the bottom had eaten the three people who had died. And this meant that Nancy Graves had eaten her own mother. And recounting her story later in a letter, Mary Ann Graves said, I wish I could cry, but I cannot. If I could forget the tragedy, perhaps I would know how to cry again. That makes me want to cry. Like 200 years later. Becoming incapable of shedding tears because of what happened to you is an insane concept. I can't imagine the PTSD and the survivor's remorse that these, oh. like, the people that do survive actually go through. Unfathomable. Went through. Yeah. When the third relief encountered the pit of survivors from the second relief party, one man on his own, named John Stark, took on the task of taking these survivors back to Johnson's Ranch on his own. The rest of the third relief, including William Eddy and William Foster, arrived back to camp only to find their children dead. William Eddy threatened to kill Louis Kesselberg after he was told that his boys were eaten, but he decided to wait until they got to California, and he would do it there. The third relief took everyone but George and Tamsin Donner, Louis Kesselberg, and a single woman named Lavina Murphy back to Johnson's Ranch with them. That sucks being the last people to leave. Yeah. Well, Tamsin didn't want to leave George, and George mm-hmm. could not move. So they right. were kind of out of luck. Louis Kessberg is just a piece of shit. Yeah. And Lavina Murphy was just kind of on her own. So, yeah. Like we mentioned, single women didn't have a lot of options no, on they... the Oregon Trail, or in this case, the off brand Oregon Trail <laughs> that just everyone dies on. The Donner Pass, as it would come to be known. Right. Not for a good reason. Yeah. It wasn't until April 13th that the fourth and final relief party set out. They arrived at the camp on the 17th to find that who else but Louis Kesselberg was the only person still alive. This meant that he either ate the other three survivors after they died, or he killed them himself and then ate them. And on top of that, he had taken most of the Donner family's valuables and money and hidden them for himself. After the fourth relief threatened to kill him, 
Kesselberg finally gave up the location of the money. When all was said and done, only 40 of the original 87 Donner Party members made it to California. And I've seen that number from 40 to 47, so I don't know what the exact number is. I'm going off of good old boy Danny Brown here. But he said 47 out of the original 87 did not make it, so only 40 survivors, apparently. Yeah, that's, like, either way, that's right around 50% of the people you started with passed, and most of them passed in extremely grisly ways with no remains because they were eaten by relatives. The men suffered more casualties than the women, with around 56% of the men dying, while only around 30% of the women died. And the main reasons for this are suggested to be the fact that the men did a majority of the heavy labor, building the cabins, going and foraging for firewood, hunting, all of that stuff, takes a toll on the body. And the female physiology is said to just be more suited for a situation like this because their bodies are usually more compact, which means that it doesn't take as much for them to maintain a body temperature, as well as the way that their bodies are made. They just have more of a layer of subcutaneous fat than men do, and that just kind of helps insulate, keep them warmer, keep them alive. That's all according to Danny Brown again. So (laughs) I did not verify any of that science, but we're counting on him to get it right. (laughs) That's extremely interesting. Like, I had no idea that... Well, I mean, hey, ladies, if you want to get out there, explore the uh, Arctic circles, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean... It's scientifically proven that you will have a better chance of surviving in a very precarious scenario. Hey, girls trip. (laughs) So, even once the groups arrived in California, it wasn't smooth sailing for all of them. Some were able to make settlements and start new lives, but for the Graves, their luck didn't really turn around as much. Both of the Graves' parents were dead, and the children, who are now led by 22-year-old Sarah, had little to no money or land of their own at this point. Marianne, who was the second oldest, got married to one of the rescue party helpers shortly after arriving, which is a funny story because it said that this boy went up to one other girl in one of the survivor parties and asked her, hey, do you want to get married? And she was like, no. What a time to shoot your shot after she literally just ate someone. Yeah. Ate multiple people. So he just moved on to Marianne Graves and was like, hey, do you want to get married? And she's like, hell yeah. Yeah, feed me. Which is honestly great for her and great for Sarah because now she has one less mouth to try and feed. Yeah. But the rest of the family pretty much had to rely on goodwill of the other surviving families. The same was true for the three little Donner girls because upon reaching camp, they were on their own and wandered around asking for food, saying, We are the children of Mr. and Mrs. Donner, and our parents are dead. Which is very sad. That's so heartbreaking. Two of the younger Graves siblings passed away shortly after arriving in California, including the one-year-old Elizabeth. Sarah eventually became a schoolteacher and was married twice, after her first husband was hung for being accused of stealing a horse. That's wild justice. Yep, wild west justice. But she did get remarried, and she had multiple children. But she died at the age of 46 in 1871, 
James Reed succeeded very well in California because he became a landowner and a land purveyor and continued to tell people that if he was still there with the Donner Party when they passed through the mountains, he would have been their saving grace. That's so obnoxious. Because like, he had no idea what they really went through. Like, no. He wasn't there. So to say that is kind of a dick move. Oh, yeah. Louis Kesselberg, the titular villain of the story, was said to have had a lot of kids with his wife in California, but most of them, along with his wife, died before him, and he died alone and penniless in California, which is the end that he rightfully deserves. Hopefully haunted by the ghost of everyone that he killed and ate. I sure hope so. And he, Daniel James Brown talks about all of the other survivors in his book, so if you want to figure out what happened to the rest of the groups, you can either look it up on the internet, I'm sure someone has it up there, or you can read it in his book. It's a fantastic book. I do recommend reading it. But... That is the story of the Donner Party. The absolute harrowing story of the Donner Party. That's one that you truly, even the best horror movie producers, I don't think they could come close to topping that. No. And there's a movie on YouTube called The Donner Party, like the full movie's up there. And I was going to watch it, but I never had the time to. So I don't know if it's any good, but I hope it is, because you literally don't have to change anything about the story to make a good movie. <laughs> right. Just don't change it. Don't do any of your own little adaptations. You don't need anything other than just, like we say all the time, just play the hits. Play the hits. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I was excited for this series, because it's just a crazy story. Right. Yeah. Like We've been uh, talking about doing this for quite some time now. Like, I believe we've been leading up, or at least you've been mentioning uh, that we're going to be doing this this episode or these episodes for a couple weeks. Yeah. And yeah, it's extremely interesting. It's one of the one of the low points of humanity, if you will, um, in terms of like people eating people. Yeah. You know, you never want to hear that, but you do have to give some credit to the survivors of this event that they somehow had the willpower to get through this. It's just, it's the most depraved thing you can do as a human is to, like, eat another person. Let alone, like, a family member. But it's different in, like, a case like this, I feel like. I mean, they didn't have to do it as quickly as they did, but they definitely were going to have to do it at some point right. to stay alive. Otherwise, they all would have died. And, I mean, you see the same thing in the story with the, uh, that, I don't remember where they're from, but, like, that. Te- that sports team that crashed in the Himalayas or what or in the Andes. Oh yeah, and they that's had, right. They had to eat the people that died upon impact to stay alive. So it's yeah. it's not like it's an unheard of thing that even in modern times has happened. So mm-hmm. desperate times call for desperate measures. Wow, that's almost a gems of horror episode to do. Just all the times people have eaten people. Yeah, and there's plenty of cases where people have eaten people where it's not been. Out of necessity, so just for fun. I mean, Fun-sies. we live in Wisconsin. You know, Je- good old Jeff. Yeah, Jeff Dahmer. I'm reading a book on him too, so we'll cover him in the future. Your library at home just has to be so uh, so interesting, dude. I got I got a Jeffrey Dahmer book. I got a book on H. H. Holmes, who's like <laughs> the first serial killer in America, pretty Triple much. Triple H, if you will. Yeah, I, get, I just bought a book on a guy who survives in the Arctic. I got a lot of cool stuff coming up. You, I mean, I am so scared for all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. 
a couple of things I wanted to mention is I'll pr- I am planning on starting up a Facebook group so that we can kind of get an interactive area for people who listen to the show so that you guys can post topic suggestions, discussion prompts, anything you guys really want to kind of get involved with you guys a little more. And then you guys can invite your friends, tell them about the show, invite them to the group if they like it, and then they can hang out with us and all that fun stuff. But yeah, let's have some conversations, make it a very more open thing, make it more community based. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And then we're also planning on doing something, a little extra content as an addendum to this series. I'm not sure when exactly it will be done. But it's going to be video-based. So we're going to do something a little different than we've ever done before, which Ex- we'll see how that goes. Expanding our horizons. I'm gonna, wow. I'm going to have to learn how to do video editing, yeah. but I, I think I could figure it out. Oh, easily, you know? Just watch a couple YouTube videos and, uh, and you're there. Watch a video on how to video edit. Yep, that's how it works. But Evan, if, until then, do you want to tell them where they can find us on social medias for now? You can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. And then you can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and myself at whatevskis. Then finally, you can find us on TikTok at gems of history pod. Hell yeah, you can. I felt like we kind of blazed through this episode, and then I looked at the time, and it's like an hour and a half long. So, Oh, it's definitely one of those. That happens to us all the time, though. Oh, yeah. It's either, wow, we don't really have much to talk about today, and then it'll be two hours. <laughs> I mean, I knew my notes were like kind of long, but I also knew like I was just kind of going to go through it like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Dun-dun-dun. But we made it here. And we, I mean, kind of hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed this series. I know it's not the most uplifting story in the world, but it's got some <laughs> highlights. So you guys can can hang on to those. Hang on to the the human spirit and the resilience of the human spirit to survive something like this. <laughs> and to eat the human spirit. And with that, we will leave you. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Adios, everybody. We will be back next week with a topic from... The one and only Evan Rouge. Because this is, Hey-o. if you couldn't tell, this is a me topic. Yeah, in case you were wondering. <laughs> All um. right, everyone. Have a great week, and we will talk to you later.